Welcome to the Temple Baptist Church Podcast, coming to you from Swan River, Manitoba, Canada. This week, we join Pastor Neil Effa in the middle of his series titled The Transformed Life. In part 15, Affectionate Greetings, he examines Romans chapter 16, verses 1 to 16. The Robe is a 1942 novel about the crucifixion of Jesus, written by Lloyd C. Douglas. The novel has a character called Marcellus who had become enamored with Jesus. And in his letters to his fiancee, Diana, who lived in Rome, he wrote to her about the life of Jesus, his teachings, his miracles, his crucifixion, and then about his resurrection. Finally, he informed her that he had decided to become a disciple of Jesus. And in her letter of response, Diana wrote, What I feared was that it might affect you. It is a beautiful story. Let it remain so. We don't have to do anything about it, do we? There are people today who have a similar response concerning Jesus. They confess that the story of Jesus is truly a beautiful one, but really don't want to do anything about it. They say they believe, but still live the same way that they used to, And live essentially as if Jesus does not exist outside of a Sunday morning worship service at their local church. Embracing Christ as Lord and Savior ought to result in spiritual transformation. And scripture encourages us to experience such transformation. The word transformation used in the original language of the New Testament is where we get the English word metamorphosis. And this word metamorphosis is defined as any marked change as in character, appearance, or condition. I am reminded of what the apostle Paul wrote when he said, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Ed Stetzer reminds us that the very heart of the Christian faith revolves around change, but it is not turning over a new leaf. It is living out a new life. Christian transformation always involves something old passing away and something new taking its place. Spiritual change is needed by everyone, the poor and the rich, the young and the old, the educated, as well as the illiterate. We are constantly in need of this change, no matter who we are. One author defined spiritual transformation in this way. He wrote the process by which God forms Christ's character in believers by the ministry of the spirit in the context of community and in accordance with biblical standards. This process involves a transformation of the whole person in thoughts, behaviors, and styles of relating to God and to others. It results in a life of service to others and witness for Christ. The ultimate goal of a transformed life is Christ's glory. He is the one adored by those whom experience his presence and we are transformed by him. They in turn seek to exalt him in the world. Well, several months ago, I began a preaching series from Romans chapters 12 to 16, which I simply entitled the transformed life. And Paul began this section from the book of Romans with these, with this urgent petition. He writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The motivation for living the transformed life is the mercies of God. In the first 11 chapters of the book of Romans, Paul carefully and clearly explained the many mercies God lavished upon us through his son, Jesus. God and his love redeemed us. He justified us. He adopted us into his family. He has forgiven us of our sin. He has predestined us, sanctified us. He has made us righteous. And so in light of that, we are to present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. In other words, we're to yield ourselves to him so that he can begin that process of transformation within us. And then what follows the first two verses of Romans 12 is a description of the transformed life. And over the last several months, we have been studying in detail the characteristics of a life being shaped and formed by God. And so this brings us to the passage that we're going to be studying this morning. I invite you to take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 16, and follow as the first 16 verses of this chapter are read. Not happening. It's not going to happen. Okay. It always works when you try it out before. <laughs> if not, Jeremy. Chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Centraea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you, for she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Achilla, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Read also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Eponetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristopolis. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophena and Trophosa. Greet the beloved Pessus, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Well, greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Well, after listening to that passage of scripture, I think you understand why I had an audio recording of the passage played. 
I didn't think I was going to find too many volunteers who would want to read scripture this morning, and I wanted to save myself from embarrassment because I think I would have stumbled over those names included in this passage. But after hearing this passage being read, you may have concluded that it is one of the least interesting chapters of the New Testament. I mean, after all, you may reason, it just consists mostly of Paul's greetings to a long list of people in Rome. It reads like credits after a movie or a telephone book. So at first glance, these verses don't seem to offer too much that would be of value for us today. The names are hard to pronounce, even harder to spell. And what makes matters worse, we don't know who most of these people are because most of them are never mentioned again in the New Testament. And so the temptation for you and me is to skip over this passage of scripture and go to what we would label more relevant portions of scripture. But I don't want us to pass over and skip over this passage this morning because I think God would have us learn something from these verses. Now, I know that many of you carry your cell phone with you. And uh, in fact, I think I heard somebody get a message not that long ago. And um, on your cell phone, you have your contacts, don't you? You have your contacts. Those contacts include your family members, your relatives, your friends, your business associates. In other words, your list of contacts is comprised of important and significant people in your life. People that you want to be in contact with on a regular basis or that you have to be in contact with on a regular basis. If you wouldn't have anything to do with those people, they probably wouldn't be on your list. And in a similar way, Romans 16 is Paul's list of contacts. And we're left to determine why he included this list in his letter to the Romans. I mean, after all, if all of scripture is inspired by God, there must be a reason for the inclusion of this list in this chapter in this inspired text. And our task is to determine the reason for its inclusion. And I think one of the reasons why Paul includes it is that Romans 16 offers us a glimpse into the nature of the early church and why it had the power to change the ancient world. John Piper writes, Romans 16 is far more than a list of names. It is dense with theology and in ecclesiology and ethics, but it's all implicit rather than explicit. And Romans 16 also reveals a different side to the great apostle Paul. Because Paul was a missionary going to places and people where the gospel had never been taken, we often view him as a rugged and courageous pioneer, a fearless apologist, a confrontational teacher. But Romans 16 reveals Paul's heart for people. In this chapter, he mentions 33 people by name, including 26 people in the church at Rome. He also mentions two others in Rome, but does not name them. And this fact is amazing when you realize that Paul had never visited Rome. He had never been to Rome. Writing to a church that he had never visited, he sends greetings to 28 different people. John MacArthur writes, this passage is by far the most extensive and intimate expression of love and appreciation to come from the tender heart and inspired mind of the Apostle Paul. It is a rich and rewarding section that yields many insights into the life of Paul, into the lives of other early Christians, and into the nature and character of the first century church. The apostles' comments about these mostly unknown individuals are all the more poignant because this great apostle takes time to speak so warmly and appreciatively of these ordinary Christians 
who were as much his brothers and sisters in Christ as Peter, James, John, and other New Testament notables. And then he concludes with these words. He here reveals his deep affection for those whom he had served, for those who had served him, and for those who served with him. And so we are left with a question. What then do we learn from the early church from this long list of names? What do we learn from these people? Well, they believe that they show us that a body of believers can be diversified and unified at the same time because a church is comprised of diverse individuals. From Paul's list, we can see that the first century church had a great deal of diversity. As Amy and I recently traveled to and from Edmonton, we commented on the diversity of colors that dotted the landscape, each color adding to the overall beauty. The diversity of the early church added to its beauty, but at the same time must have been surprising in that first century world. In the first century, there was segregation and division, but not so in the early church. And so what kind of diversity existed within the early church? Well, there was diversity in gender. Just the fact that the church was made up of both men and women was in itself different. Yet in this chapter, there are the names of at least six notable women in the church that were well known to Paul, that worked with Paul, while the other names are the names of men. So the passage clearly reflects diversity in gender. But there is also diversity in ethnicity. Mixed together in the fellowship of the Roman church could be found the Jewish and the Gentile. Truly in Jesus Christ, the middle wall of partition had been torn down. The walls of segregation that had characterized a human family had dissolved because of the cross and before the cross. Greek, Roman, Jew, Latin, and all others were mingled together in this church. There was diversity in social standing. We, meet, we read of Aquila and Priscilla. Evidently, this couple were a couple of means. At least they possessed enough to own a home in which a portion of the Roman church could meet for worship. Yet those familiar with the names listed tell us that most of them were names commonly worn by slaves in the first century. Archaeologists have found many of the names on tombs and other writings that would identify them as slaves. And evidently, some of them even served in the household of Caesar himself. Therefore, people of means and people with little comprised the church in Rome. Doubtless, there would have been diversity in age, the young and the old in the church fellowship. When you read through the text, the very tenses of the verbs call attention to the past service of Persis and the present service of Tryphena and Tryphosa. Now, could that not suggest to us that Persis had become disabled with age and was no longer able to physically labor for as she once did? Well, the other two sisters listed there were of the younger age and were serving faithfully. So there is diversity in age. The text also implies that there was diversity in giftedness. Phoebe was a deaconess. Others were missionaries who had been sent out with the gospel. Prisca and Aquila opened their home to host the gatherings of the church. Remember earlier in the letter to the Romans, Paul had reminded them that God equipped them with spiritual gifts for the edification of the body and for the advancement of the gospel. This group of believers were using their diverse gifts for that very purpose. Men and women 
young and old, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. The early church was the epitome of diversity. But they were not only known for their diversity, they were also known for their unity. And their diversity was expressed in their unity. And this made themselves a, uh, just a, a beautiful example of God's grace at work in their lives. Well, their unity is expressed in the terminology that Paul uses. He describes his friends as being in Christ, being in the Lord, beloved, fellow workers, fellow sufferers. These men and women were living proof that a body of believers can be diverse and unified at the same time. When they gathered in homes for worship and fellowship and teaching, there was no racial, social, or gender segregation. Rather, they accepted one another and glorified the Lord Jesus Christ together. And so their unity was expressed in the terminology that Paul uses in this text. But their unity was also expressed in their practice of the holy kiss. Paul concludes this section by saying, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, perhaps some of you are thinking to yourself, it's time that we reinstate this practice in the church today. I don't know, but um, you may be wondering, what is a holy kiss? Well, this was a common practice in the early church. And it was a sign of affection, of honor, respect, and friendship. Ray Pritchard offers this background to the holy kiss, which I think you will find helpful. He says, evidently, it was widely practiced in the first few centuries of the Christian church. We're told that during the worship service, there would be a time of greeting in which the men would kiss the men and the women, the women on the cheek or the forehead or in the case of the men on the beard. So we'll stop right now. Everybody stand and kiss one another. Okay. Women too. No. Um, But it was a sign of intense family relationship in the early church. They didn't just talk about being a family. They were a family and the holy kiss served as a symbol of their love for each other. It was a holy kiss because it was exchanged between holy people. And it was a holy kiss because they truly felt that they were brothers and sisters in one big happy family. The holy kiss was a normal greeting between Christians. Ray Pritchard then goes on to quotes from some of the early documents. And one document says, let the deacon say to the people, let no one have any quarrel against another. Let no one come in hypocrisy. Then let the men give the men and the women, the women, the Lord's kiss. But let no one do it with deceit as Judas betrayed the Lord with a kiss. Augustine said of the early Christians, they demonstrated their inward peace by their outward kiss. And Cyril of Jerusalem said, this kiss is a sign that our souls are united and that we banish all remembrance of injury. The early Christians felt that the holy kiss signified innocent affection. There was no hint of sensuality or impropriety about it. It was a common cultural greeting in those days that the early Christians adopted and gave a deeper meaning as a sign of their unity in Christ. And then Ray Pritchard concludes with these thoughts. When you, he extends us to hugging and, and putting a friendly arm around someone's shoulder. He says, when you hug someone or when you put a friendly arm around a shoulder or when you greet someone with a holy kiss, you are sending a message that cannot be missed. I care about you. You're not alone. We're in this together. And if we, if we can't say that in church, where can we say it? And if we're embarrassed to say that in church, why are we here in the first place? Those are powerful words. Words that we need to hear in a day and age when such gestures are off limits.
And I understand that there are appropriate and inappropriate gestures concerning touch. But there are times and places where such expressions of affection are appropriate and are needed. And such expressions demonstrate our love, our unity, and our respect for one another. And so Paul, as he, as he talks to this congregation, as he writes to the Roman church, he reminds them of their unity, that they are fellow workers, but also that they have that demonstration through affection, that fond affection for one another. And so let's go back to the question I asked at the outset of the sermon. Why, does Roman six, why is Romans 16 included in the text, in the holy text, in our scriptures? Again, one reason is to remind us of this important and significant truth. The church is made up of ordinary, diverse, unified people who know the Lord, who are growing in him, serve him, and love one another. As we bring things to a close this morning, I have a question that I would like to ask you in light of this text, and then have you think of it and, and to respond accordingly. If Paul were writing a letter to our church, if we had received a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church family at Temple Baptist Church, how do you think he would greet you? How would he greet me? As we reflect upon that question, there's space on your handout to write a few sentences on the things that you think he would say regarding the things that you do well, but those areas in which you can improve. I think it would do us well to stop and to consider what would be said of us if a letter of greeting were written to our church fellowship. As Paul wrote to the Roman church, a church that he had never visited, obviously he had heard of these people, many of them who had become his fellow servants, so to speak, individuals who helped him in his service. And he commended them. He had heard back from others of the way in which they were using their gifts, the way they were relating to one another. And he commended them for it. There are other passages of scripture where, and we're going to find out later, where Paul actually had to correct individuals because of their behaviors, because of their practices, because of their attitudes within the body of Christ. And so we ask ourselves this morning, if something were to be said of us regarding what we do well, what would that be? If something were to be said of us in terms of how we need to improve, what would that be? And so through this affectionate greeting that Paul gives to the Roman church, we discover much about the nature of the early church and its power to advance the gospel and to change lives. Bow with me, please, as I pray. Father, we again thank you for your inspired word. And we know that every verse is in the Bible for a particular reason. And we thank you for this passage that even though it contains names of people that are hard to pronounce and uh, are never mentioned anywhere else in scripture, it reminds us of the diversity and unity of your body, of your church. And how when individuals who come from diverse backgrounds are brought together in unity through Christ, how it's a beautiful display to the world of your love and your grace and your mercy. And so that's my prayer for our church fellowship, Father, that as we are diverse people coming from diverse backgrounds and experiences, that yet we would be unified 
because of our unity in Christ, that we would express that unity in the care and compassion that we have for one another and in the exercising of the gifts that you have given to us. Father, as we faithfully fulfill those responsibilities, may you use us in a powerful way to edify this local body of believers, but also to take your gospel to the remotest parts of the earth. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We hope we were able to provide wisdom and insight in your faith journey. If you would like to connect with us, you are welcome to join our service every Sunday morning at 1030. For more information, you can find us at facebook.com slash tbcswanriver. And if you would like to find more episodes of our podcast, go to anchor.fm slash templebaptistchurch. Thank you.